This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Welcome back to the AJ Bell and Shares Magazine Money and Markets podcast. I'm Dan Coatesworth and joining me this week is Danny Hewson. Hello. Tom Selby and Jenny Owen. Hello. So it's a massive week for big companies reporting their latest earnings. So we're going to look at what's going on with Tesla, Microsoft, Google, Lloyds and HSBC. I'll also be talking to Hugh Young about how the Aberdeen Standard Asia Focus Fund has managed to become the second best performing investment trust since ISAs were launched in 1999. Tom's going to be answering another listener question on pensions this week. He'll be talking about the tax rules on retirement pot withdrawals. Later in the podcast, we'll be chatting about the post office roles in providing much needed banking services to communities and how a parliamentary committee is asking the government to do more to help financially vulnerable people. And don't miss our regular light-hearted look at the world of money as this week's slot celebrates what's either one of the worst corporate rebranding moves ever, or a stroke of pure genius. First, let's have a look at the big companies which have been reporting. Dan, you're going to kick us off with banks? Yeah, so we've had figures from Lloyds and HSBC. And, you know, certainly with Lloyds, the market's been pricing in a brighter outlook. The share price has gone up by 65% in the last six months. Um, and yeah, and the bank has delivered some very good first quarter numbers. So, Net interest margin was better than expected. And that's the difference between what it earns from interest charged on loans and the interest it pays out on savings deposits. So costs were also better than expected. And I think under the circumstances, outgoing chief executive Antonio Horta Osario should be very pleased that he's signing off with a positive update. So going forward, Lloyd's suggests it could earn better returns, further cut costs and pay higher dividends. And I think that's that's a real turnaround if you consider that the banking sector has been through the wars over the past decade or so. So it's, it's seen the global financial crisis, the PPI scandal, and then the coronavirus pandemic looked like it was going to inflict more damage. And that, that made lots of the banks put aside large amounts of money to cover any bad debts. But so far, it looks like they were overcautious. And, you know, HSBC is releasing some of these provisions and it toasted good trading in various parts of its business. Part of that's down to the very strong UK property market. So its mortgage lending has been doing very well. Um, and actually, all, all this sort of positivity will put pressure on the business to be generous with dividends. But the HSBC remains cautious at the moment, and it's not going to decide when it will next pay cash to shareholders until it makes an announcement in August. So if you thought the UK market was busy with company news this week, just look at the US. So someone thought it was a bright idea to stuff all the big names into one week. So us poor financial journalists have to spend every waking hour trying to digest these numbers. So Danny, which you've been looking at the, the, the big tech names that have been publishing their quarterly figures. Which ones have caught your eye? Well, you're right. It has been incredibly busy. And what's been really difficult is, of course, in the UK, we've got results coming out seven o'clock in the morning. And in the US, particularly these big tech companies are waiting until after the bell to uh, to release their reports. So you're talking then around 10 o'clock in the evening before you get a chance to have a real look at them. Yeah, I'm going to start with Tesla because everyone loves a bit of Elon Musk. And Tesla um, recorded profits that it almost doubled compared to the same quarter last year, $438 million. 
Um, but what's been really interesting is despite the fact that they also saw the number of cars made um, going up by almost 100,000, um, when you dig into the figures, you see that inside those profits, not all of it has come from making cars. In fact, $518 million actually came from uh, these um, regulatory credits, which are sold to more polluting car makers, and 110 million pounds came from Bitcoin sales. So you could actually, when you dig in a bit more, wonder about the profitability, because it does seem that they are still loss making. One of the big winners of the whole lockdown period does seem to have been Google. And this is just an absolutely incredible figure. When you look at their profit, it more than doubled in the last quarter. It was up 162% to $17.9 billion, which is absolutely massive. And, and really, effectively, what they are is they're a massive advertising beast, aren't they? So their search business was up 30%. YouTube sales were up 49%. And... Uh, they really have done incredibly well and just demonstrating not only the resilience of the business throughout lockdown, but of course, as all those restrictions start to ease. And another one which was out last night was Microsoft. Their quarterly earnings also beat expectations. It was a 19% boost in revenue to $41.7 billion. And one of the big factors there has been, of course, when we've been stuck at home, we've needed to have technology to allow us to, to work from home and get on with our everyday lives. So what they've seen is um, 365 subscriptions up 27% year on year. And their Windows PC market was also up 10%. So, it, it, you know, this is a business which is doing incredibly well. But what is surprising is that the shares fell because they didn't quite reach the expectations that uh, a lot of analysts had set for them, which seems just absolutely incredible when you consider the numbers we're talking about. Yeah, I think, well, Microsoft has been like the darling of the stock market for a couple of years now. And I think that expectations have just been so high and and at some point um you know when you've been growing so fast um it's, it's, it's really difficult to sort of constantly meet these high expectations so yeah i think it's um i think there will be some disappointed shareholders but um perhaps if you've held the shares for for quite a while you may not be too disappointed so Aberdeen Standard Asia Focused is the second best performing investment trust since ISAs launched in the UK in 1999. So I'm pleased to welcome its manager, Hugh Young, onto the podcast. So Hugh, thanks for joining us today. Many thanks, Dan. So let's start by looking at these returns over the past 20 odd years. So what's been driving that performance to make you score so highly in the in the tables? Uh, pure and simple, it's been driven by the stocks we've chosen, um, obviously helped by a, a very strong uh, tailwind from Asian growth, uh, but it's simply down to the ability to identify stocks on the ground, and we have uh, a large team on the ground with plenty of experience in Asia, and uh, sort of un unturning stones and finding some real hidden gems. Great. So, so you've only been 
the lead manager since 2018. But what's changed with how you run the trust versus 10 or, or perhaps 20 years ago? Well, I, actually, I set up the, uh, the the trust originally, so I've always been involved on the team. Uh, it simply didn't have a, a, a named manager, so it was very much the Aberdeen Standard team, um, and, and I've been part of that team since inception. Uh, it, it was then decided to name me, which is super, because it's something <laughs> I love doing, and um uh, so I've always been involved with the trust. I think uh, I think it is fair to say it has changed a bit more since since I was named um, uh, lead manager. Uh, insofar as uh, you'll have noticed, the trust name changed a few years ago. Um, although its remit remained the same, so it's still very much to invest in Asian smaller companies, uh, but it changed its name to Asia Focus. Uh, just with an extra focus. So um, over the last few years, um, you've seen the number of names uh, reduced within the overall trust uh, and some new names come in, quite a chunk of new, exciting names uh, come in, uh, some of which we can talk about later. Okay, so if you look at the IMF's economic forecast for the next few years, now Asia is clearly a source of growth, particularly China. But what surprises me is that China doesn't really feature in your portfolio. So why is this? It does feature, but it's not the largest percentage of the portfolio. So it features in in many ways in. Um, in in hidden aspects, um, mm-hmm. we have a chunk in Hong Kong. Uh, we have many of the companies in which we're involved are obviously uh, doing business in China. They're, they might have manufacturing subsidiaries there or not. Um, uh, we have a large chunk in Taiwan, which uh, of, of, it's particularly true of the Taiwanese companies uh, that they set up businesses in China. I think as far as the lack of pure exposure uh, to China is concerned, to pure uh, mainland Chinese companies, um, is uh, almost twofold. Uh, One is that uh, China itself is such a big stock market and such a big economy. Finding companies uh, below the one and a half billion US dollar threshold, which is our threshold, um, has been difficult. And many of the exciting growth companies that we would like to invest in China um, uh, simply don't come to market uh, at that early stage. So they tend to remain private uh, and then come to market. And we're seeing a flurry of those coming to market at the moment uh, with market caps of 20 billion, 30 billion, which is out with our, our, our investment parameters. Uh, so that's been partially frustrating, but luckily we've been happily compensated by by a wealth of opportunities uh, related to China, but in uh, markets other than China. Okay, so I noticed you got money invested in Momo. I think most people in the UK won't have heard of this company, but I've seen it described as the Taiwanese equivalent of Amazon. Can you sort of talk through what it does uh, and, and perhaps how it's got this position in Taiwan. Uh, you know, is that because Amazon just doesn't have a presence in that country? Mm. Uh, yes. I mean, I mean sim- simply put, it is Taiwan's equivalent of 
Amazon, and, and that's probably a sufficient explanation of its business. Uh, the reason it's uh, got such a strong position, and it, it, it's obviously not alone in Taiwan. There's another homegrown competitor. Uh, they're also the mainland Chinese competitors, such as Alibaba, competing in that market. Um, uh, the, the reason it's done well is uh, the first mover advantage. So it's been been around for the best part of 20 years. Uh, it's also supported by one of Taiwan's uh, leading business families. Uh, so those have been the real dynamic factors behind Momo's growth. Uh, and Amazon simply has been a, a latecomer, as, as, as is true for much of the Asian region. So you'll see in, in, in Asia various names that you wouldn't necessarily uh, have heard of in the West, Shopee, Taobao, uh, Momo, PC Home, for example, uh, that are all uh, give or take Amazon equivalents, but they've just been doing it in this part of the world longer than Amazon. Yeah. So do, I mean, do you prefer investing in companies that domestic plays in their respective countries rather than sort of companies that are trying to be uh, international sort of sellers and, and operators? I think a, a mix is the honest answer. With, within the, the overall portfolio, we try and keep a balance. We try and keep a balance between um, uh, business sectors that, in which we invest as well as geographic areas in which we invest. So all our eggs are, are not just in one basket. Uh, traditionally, uh, we've had a fondness for domestic businesses, uh, and, and in the old days, it was it was very simple, and to a large extent, it, it is even now the the leading domestic bank, uh, if it meets its uh, our criteria on the basis that an economy is growing, people are taking out mortgages, credit cards, and so on. Um, it could be the, the leading domestic retailer. Uh, Momo effectively now is, is that. Uh, and you're slightly more protected uh, in that sense, that you're not competing against a company based in America or in Europe or in Japan or, or wherever it may be. So, so you have some... Uh, defensive characteristics from a business. But also at the same time, we found uh, plenty of companies linked in, particularly to the um, uh, international supply chains of manufacturing and technology uh, that are competing against uh, companies worldwide. Um, I mean, it's tough, obviously, and you've got to be really... Uh, top of your game when when you're competing in the global marketplace, uh, but again, Asia's big enough uh, and and has these companies. So I think for us, it's a it it's a mix of the two, but being very aware of the dangers that uh, uh, an, an international marketplace can bring, the competitive dangers um, if 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 you're competing internationally. Yeah. So how, how are you feeling about markets at the moment? Are you sort of quite bullish or do you feel that there's quite a lot of good news about post-pandemic mm. economic recovery is already priced in? Yes, that's, that, is a, that is a tough one. Um, in one sense, one feels good uh, hearing that markets are hitting all-time highs. Uh, but of course, having been covering these markets for well over 30 years, it also makes one worried. Uh, that when things are so good, um, they can reverse. Uh, 
uh, are they're good for some very clear reasons. Uh, one is the money that governments have thrown at markets and low interest rates. Uh, the other, as, as, as you correctly say, is we're seeing a, a very sharp earnings recovery uh, as we come out of the pandemic. So the fundamentals are actually quite good. I would say the prices are still not too high. If you look at Asian markets, they're still selling at a discount to global markets. And and if you look at our particular portfolio in Asia Focus, uh, we're selling on 16 times earnings 18 months out, uh, which is not out of kilter. Uh, with what it's traded at in the past. Not as cheap as it's been from time to time, uh, but neither is it, is it as ac- expensive uh, as it has been. So I think overall, one would still be bullish, al- although not surprised at any short-term setbacks. Perfect. Well, Hugh, thank you ever so much for joining us on the podcast. Great. Many thanks, Dan. Okay, so Tom is back agony and costume at the ready, ready to tackle pension questions that we've got. If you do, of course, have any queries about retirement saving and how pensions work, do get in touch via podcast at ajbell.co.uk and we'll try and answer all of your questions on a future podcast or in an issue of Shares magazine. Now, Tom, Alex has been in touch saying his pension is fully crystallised but he only took around 12% tax-free at the time he crystallised it. He wants to know if he can still take a further 13% tax-free. Now, before you start, it is worth explaining what crystallising is because, you know, some of our listeners won't know what this yeah, jargon it's means. it's a, a weird old pensions technical word. So when you crystallise your pension, it just means you're choosing a retirement income option, which is what you can do once you reach age 55. So in most cases, crystallizing will take one of three forms. So you'll either buy an annuity from an insurance company. So that will pay you a guaranteed income for life with up to 25% of the fund available tax-free at the point the annuity is purchased. You'll enter drawdown. So when you enter drawdown, your fund remains invested and you're in charge of managing your retirement income strategy and your withdrawals as well. And again, at the point you enter drawdown, up to 25% of your fund will be available tax-free with any other withdrawals taxed in the same way as income. And then the third main option is taking ad hoc lump sums. So if you go down this avenue of crystallizing your fund, then that allows you to take individual lump sums from your retirement pot with a quarter of each lump sum tax-free and the rest taxed in the same way as income. Now, of course, lots of people go for a combination of those options when they're generating income in retirement, but crystallization is important because, as Alex alludes to in his question, this is when you become entitled to your 25% tax-free cash, which is one of the most valuable and one of the most appreciated parts of saving a pension for lots of people and indeed lots of for lots of people getting at their 25% tax free cash is one of their one of their key aims once they reach age 55 um once someone has crystallized their entire fund as alex suggests he has done here unfortunately there is no going back so anyone wanting to take their full 25% tax-free cash entitlement needs to do so at the point they choose a retirement income route, be that annuity or drawdown. Uh, for anyone who 
doesn't want to crystallize their entire pension, so doesn't want to choose a, a retirement income route for their entire pension, then you can do this in a partial way, what's known, often referred to as partial crystallization. Um, so that simply involves picking a retirement income route for some, but not all of your pension, and then generating some tax-free cash off the top of that. Um, probably, as with often with these things, easier to explain with an example. So if you take someone who's got £100,000 in a SIP who wants to access £5,000 of tax-free cash to do up their kitchen, for example, um, rather than putting all of their fund into drawdown, generating uh, £25,000 in tax-free cash, so the 25% lump sum and having the rest going into drawdown, they could instead choose to put just £20,000 of their fund into drawdown. So at the point they do that, £5,000 would be available tax-free and the other £15,000 would be invested and would be in drawdown and would be there for them to take a retirement income from with the remaining £80,000 of their fund left untouched. So they would then be entitled to 25% tax-free cash from that part of their fund, that untouched part of their funds fund once they decide to choose a retirement income for that bit of the fund. And one of the advantages of that approach is that the rest of your fund and the tax-free cash entitlement attached to it is able to grow over time. Um, one one final point I'd say, um, it's clearly uh, get, getting at your tax-free cash is an attractive part of getting of, of access to your pension is something that lots of people in are, are in a rush to do. Um, I think, first of all, anyone who's taking their tax-free cash should make sure that they've got a plan for that money. So you don't want a large sum of money to be sat in a bank account for a long period of time that's paying low or zero interest because the value of that money will be eaten away by inflation. So have a plan for that money and also have a plan for the rest of your pot as well. So don't just go in and get your tax-free cash and think about what you're doing. Make sure you're happy with your investments and make sure you're happy with where the tax-free cash is being spent or invested once you get that money. So the post office is back in the news for both good and bad reasons. So before we discuss its latest moves to help people access money, Danny, I think it's worth touching on the accounting scandal and how two listed companies have parted ways with someone who used to be at the post office. Yes, yeah, so this is uh, both Morrison's and Dunn Elm parted ways with Paula Venels, who was on the board of those companies. She stepped down earlier this week. Um, this is because she was uh, in charge. She was chief executive of the post office between 2012 and 2019, a period of time during which uh, a number of people were challenging convictions that they'd had um, to do with fraud and theft and it was all based on a computer system which was put into the post office back in 1999 called the Horizon System. And effectively, it was creating these issues with accounting. And a lot of these sub-postmasters were caught out by this and they were sacked. Some of them went to jail. And over the years, I've spoken to a number of them who said their lives were absolutely ruined by this. And the Court of Appeal has now ruled that in 39 cases, convictions should be quashed. And of course, this then resulted in Paula Venel saying, look, you know, I, I would like to see a public inquiry into exactly what happened. I fully support that. And she just felt that she needed to step down from her position with those two companies and both companies 
thanked her for her service um, and said that, you know, she was leaving and it basically left her that. But this is a, a real sort of um, demonstration of, of ESG um, because governance clearly is something which companies are, are very concerned about. And the reason that we're talking about the post office is because they're getting involved in a new scheme. So it's being trialled at eight locations. I'm sure many of you have noticed banks disappearing from the high street. I've certainly seen a number of banks closed uh, where I am. And that might seem fine when we're all using cards more, you know, contactless. But there are an awful lot of people who still really rely on cash. And in fact, the Financial Conduct Authority say around 5 million people still rely on cash. Uh, not just the elderly either, of course, there are lots of other people for various reasons and some businesses still use cash quite a lot. So what the post office is doing, it's going to run these hubs, as I say, trialled in eight locations and they're partnering with five high street banks. And it's kind of a clever idea and it will certainly help keep the costs down. So there will be a counter service, there will be a, a teller where you'll be able to withdraw money from a hole in the wall. And each day, one person from one of the different banks will go in to help doing some of the more tricky banking tasks, even being able to, to help you get a mortgage. So they're going to see how this works out. And uh, if it is successful, I think you can expect this to be rolled out to uh, many uh, towns and even some cities across the country. Yeah, I mean, it, it certainly sounds uh, more um, comprehensive than, than what you might have seen in the post office traditionally, where you can just go in and uh, you know pay a check in or withdraw some money. So um, it's, it's quite interesting because there's a report out from the House of Lords Liaison Committee, and it, and it wants banks and financial services providers to have a better duty of care towards customers. Now, as part of this, it wants um, the post office and the government to sort of shout about these banking services that are on offer through the post office network because there's still lots of people who don't realize that they're there. Now, it, its latest report estimates that there's 14.2 million people in the UK with low financial resilience. And by that, it means that they're, they're characterized by being uh, either heavily in debt or low levels of savings or erratic earnings. And that figure is up by a third since the start of 2020 following the pandemic. Now, it essentially means we've now got more than half of the population with characteristics of financial vulnerability. So I just think that the pandemic has definitely shifted the world's attention to online channels. But you know, not everyone's got a phone or a computer. And I, and I do think that lots of people would benefit from being able to go into an actual, either you know, whether it's a bank branch or or to a post office to get some help. So, um, this liaison committee wants the the government to ensure that non digital access to financial services remains possible. So that means free telephone lines, um, the ability to have face to face meetings where appropriate, um, and also, like you said at the start, Danny, it's all about ensuring that there's still access to cash. So whilst in the pandemic, we were told perhaps to pay by card, because if we use cash, you might be sort of spreading germs. But, um, you know, longer term, there's definitely a need for cash. And that's got to come from free to use cash machines, banking hubs or inevitably from the post office. Because, of course, there is a worry that for some businesses, using cash just becomes too expensive and they end up just accepting cards, which, as you say, puts some people 
at a huge disadvantage. Um, it is time now for our light-hearted look at the world of money. And Jenny has been swatting up on, I think is quite clever corporate branding because the folk at uh, One Asset Management Business certainly, have they got a grip on what works or not, Jenny? It's a fine question, and, and it comes from, obviously, a form of a name change, but it's, it set Twitter ablaze with people questioning how they spell the name of a Scottish city. Um, Standard Life and Aberdeen Asset Management, they merged in 2017 to form Standard Life Aberdeen. And as they have several arms of the business, they thought it was time to declare a rebrand, especially seeing as Standard Life's name was sold to Phoenix Group for £60 million. It was decided that A-B-R-D-N, which is pronounced as Aberdeen and spelt without any E's, was the perfect solution. Um, Chief Executive Stephen Bird says the name changes modern, dynamic and engaging to their clients. Are they trying to sound youthful and edgy? Well, I found an interesting insight from a language and linguistics lecturer who said it's not modern at all. In fact, it's old fashioned and echoes like back to the late 90s text message speak where dropping vowels was the norm. Um, despite having to explain how to pronounce a new name in a press release, the firm is going ahead with the rebrand in summer. I personally don't have a gripe with the letter E and I know a plethora of countdown jokes were noted in the news where more vowels were requested. <laughs> I love this, I have to say, and, and I know that there was an awful lot of people poking fun at uh, the decision to rebrand this way, mm. but it got everybody talking and don't think anyone will forget the name. That's why it's so smart. I mean, whether you like it or not, it's sticking around and it's it's all over social media and the news. So something's working. Yeah. What do you think, Dan? Well, yes, I mean, it, it, it's probably worth pointing out that we, you know, I had a chat with Hugh Young from Aberdeen Standards earlier in the podcast. We recorded that segment just before this was uh, the, the corporate rebranding was announced. Otherwise, we would have had a bit of a chuckle with him about <laughs> what he thought of it. Obviously, <laughs> working for the company, but yeah, you're right. You know, it, it's you know, it's the fact that we're talking about it, uh, it it's, it's it's free publicity, isn't it? Really, so yeah. But you know, I, you want to have to think. Okay, let's go down the road six 12 months time um you know if they're ultimately trying to attract new customers and it's just yet another um company was missing its vowels you know will it still be as effective then it, it's certainly good publicity now but you know long term who yeah who knows let's see so yeah so um that's it for this week tom is back with us again next week to talk about something deemed to be the retirement lottery and we're also going to talk with Andy Webb about banks and switching statistics. So until then, thanks very much for listening and we'll catch you next time. Bye. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor.